Hanging in there? <clears throat> I hope you are. We have opportunity to take a look at Isaiah 42 tonight. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to Isaiah chapter 42. From chapter 39 forward, so 40, 41 on the 66, uh, there's going to be a, a focus on the servant of God. And the servant of God is going to refer to either Israel or Messiah. And uh, there's some interesting ways uh, that we can tell the difference uh, in the context as we take a look at it. But as we wander our way through, we have this idea, right, that God had, <clears throat> the nation of Israel was supposed to be God's servant to shine light on the Gentiles, right? Israel was going to be those people who followed the Lord and become an example for others to watch. But in reality, what we see happen is, the, the nation of Israel, rather than following God as they ought, rather than doing the things like they ought to do, we see them being unfaithful. And when they're unfaithful, they fall under judgment, they end up in exile. So you have this idea sown throughout Isaiah that there's another, suffer, there's another servant, a suffering servant, that's going to pave the way for light to be shed for the Gentiles. And so tonight we get an opportunity to look at the first one in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42. As we look at Isaiah chapter 42, we'll see uh, this reference. Now we have a reference, servant will refer to Israel. One time servant will refer to uh, um, Cyrus. We'll see that in Isaiah 44. Uh, and then three times it's going to refer to the Christ, to Jesus. Number one of those times we have Right here. Begins in verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So anytime we look at the concept of the gospel, and the, the teaching of the kingdom of God, we need to recognize that part of the coming of the kingdom of God is the coming of justice. Right, we we struggle with establishing justice today. Right, they they trade wrong for right, good for evil. Right, we see the world upside down. Well, the Bible tells us that when Messiah comes, when Jesus returns, he's going to establish justice. And in a way, he has left us, you and I, as his ambassadors. Right, the church as his ambassadors to. Uh, establish justice in as much as we're able until the king returns. Jesus said, do business till I come, right? He didn't say, just uh, hide your head in the sand and hope I get there in time. No, he told us to do business. He told us to engage. He told us to build, to live, to be a part. So, so we have this concept laid out for us. Now, what we see here, this servant in Isaiah 42.1, there's some things we see. We see one that he's prominent. He's prominent because God says, I will uphold him. God says, I'm going to hold him up. Psalm 17, 5, we have a reference. It says, my steps held fast to your path. My feet have not slipped. We're holding fast to what God has given. In Psalm 41, he says, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. So the psalmist declaring God's upholding. And then Psalm 63 says, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. So the idea that, that the 
ability, and we'll see this moving forward from uh, the New Testament on, that the ability to be who God's calling us to be hinges on God working in our life. It's not something we churn up on our own. It's His right hand upholding us. It's His Holy Spirit empowering us, right? The same, the same we see in the example with Christ. We also see that uh, this servant is precious. He's my chosen. My chosen one. Now, we see scripture, throughout scripture, several um, uh, references to the chosen. You have the nation of Israel, right? Everybody gets that? The nation of Israel are referred to over and over again as God's chosen people, his elect. It's also used of Moses in Psalm 106. It says, therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away the wrath from destroying them. So you have Moses referred to as his chosen one. It's also used of David. It says in Psalm 89, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. So we have, again, the son of David, a reference to Messiah, right? Christ, the the coming promised one, uh, in, in similar fashion. And then here in Isaiah 42, it's used of Messiah, the Christ. He's my chosen one. Now, you might say, well, Jackie, I, I'm not convinced yet that this is Messiah. Just hold on. We'll get there. Just come along with me on this little journey that we take together. We see the power of this servant. What is the power of this servant? My spirit will be upon him. Now, think about the ministry of Christ. Isn't that true for him? Now, is it less true for David or Moses or or at times uh, the, the nation of Israel? No, no, it's the same. In order for God's people ever to have walked and been, and, and been enabled to be the men or women that God's calling them to be, the one thing that is the common denominator is the Spirit of God being upon them. It's the Spirit of God that is our empowerment. Now think about Isaiah 61. You're familiar with it. Isaiah 61 goes like this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now how is it that we know Isaiah 61 is about Messiah? If you remember, in the Gospels, Jesus stood in a synagogue in Nazareth. He opened up the scroll to this place in Isaiah 61. He read this verse before the people and he declared, Today, this verse is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus said, Isaiah 61 is about me. He makes that reference. He points that direction. We also see the purpose. What's the purpose of this servant? The servant in Isaiah 42.1. The purpose of that servant is to bring forth justice to whom? To the nations, to the Gentiles. Right? So this is not just about justice for Israel. Right? This is global. This is a much bigger, a much bigger scheme we see here. Now look at verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. The idea is, is as he comes, he's going to <clears throat> come in peace. Now Jesus will say, you think I came to bring peace? I came to bring a sword. Why? Because he's the dividing point, right? 
Don't we see that in our world today? If you're for Jesus, that automatically puts you out of some groups, right? That automatically causes a delineation. But he also said in John 14, 7 to his disciples, he said, peace I leave with you. And when he did it, he said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, so let not your hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. God, Jesus Christ, came, and by his sacrifice, he for, for the first time ever, perhaps, he brought peace where there was enmity. Right? Think about it. We, the Bible says we were at enmity with God. We're enemies of God. God in his grace would, would uh, forgive, uh, bring mercy rather than justice, right? Or his people would cease to exist altogether. But when Jesus Christ came, when he came and he became, him who knew no sin became my sin sacrifice, and he died on my behalf for my atonement, his righteousness became a, the clothing I could be clothed in, right? I could be clothed in his righteousness, even though I'm not a righteous man. So I put on his righteousness. What is it that he's accomplishing? He's giving me peace. Between who? Me and God. He made peace. He made peace. It's not about him shouting, beating. Jesus said in John, right? In John chapter 1, don't think that I came into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world's already condemned. So I don't got to condemn you. You're already condemned. I came to save. I came to save. I came to make a way. Look at verse 3. Now this all should start sounding familiar. Maybe somewhere in the back of your mind. You say, it seems like I've heard this before somewhere. You have. It's coming. Isaiah 42.3. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. What's he talking about? He says he's going to have passion for the broken. When Jesus walked on earth in his earthly ministry, when they, when they wanted to call him bad names, what did they say of him? Oh, wine-bibber, oh, glutton. He's always hanging out with sinners. He had a passion for the broken. What does it say? It says uh, uh, when he comes, when he sees the bruised reed, he's not going to come snap it off. When he sees that, that wick all just barely smoldering, almost lost its spark, it says he won't quench it. Right? He, he didn't come to break in the sense of destruction, destroy the broken. He came to make a way that the broken could be made whole. That was what Isaiah 61 was all about, right? I'm going to make the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. What's he saying? I'm going to take the broken and I'm going to make them whole. We're whole. We're empowered in Christ. Apart from that, I can do nothing. Isn't that what the scripture declares? Apart from him, I can do nothing. Now here's why I say that Isaiah 42 is about Messiah. In Matthew 12, you have... In the gospel, these words. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Sound familiar? My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. 
He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice (coughs) to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. (coughs) Matthew tells us Isaiah 42 is about who? Jesus. Isaiah 42, the servant of Isaiah 42, is Messiah. It's a, it's a look at Messiah. Verse 4, it says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he said a phrase. You guys know the phrase I'm thinking of? Tetelestai, or it is what? Finished. Does that mean there's something left to be done? No, it's finished, right? It's done. Justice is served. God's, God's wrath was satisfied on the cross with Jesus Christ. And now whoever will put on that robe, whoever will put on the wedding garment, whoever will put on Christ, whoever will recognize, I can't be there, I can't measure up to this on my own. That's what the good news is all about. I can't measure up, so I repent of my sin and I put my trust in Christ. Right? Repent and believe. I repent of my sin. I put my trust in Jesus Christ. I'm clothed in His righteousness. Now there's justice. There's peace between me and God. And the wrath of God is just, it's, is, the wrath of God is satisfied. Now, what happens if somebody doesn't do that? Well, Jesus told a parable, you remember? He told a parable about a wedding feast. And He said they found a fellow in the wedding feast that didn't have a garment on. You remember? And he asked him, why, why don't you have a garment? And he made this excuse or that. And the, and the master of the feast cast him out. And what's the next phrase? Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? It's not because he was incapable of putting on the garment. He just didn't. Traditionally, at a wedding feast, the garment, the box of garments, would be right outside the front door. All you had to do is walk up to the front door. You got the invitation, right? Who does it say was invited to that wedding feast? He said, go everywhere. Invite everyone you see, everyone in the streets, everyone wherever you find them, invite them to the wedding feast. And when they come to the door, right there, traditionally, there would be a box full of wedding garments. All you have to do is pick it up and put it on. If you don't have one on, it's because you chose not to put on the wedding garment, and walk into the feast. And now, the wrath of God will be satisfied a different way. Right? But it will always be satisfied. There will be justice. God is just. He's holy. And He's right. <clears throat> so, Matthew, we see, pointing to Messiah, Isaiah 4, telling us that He will not stop until he has accomplished justice on the earth. In fact, it says, the coastlands. Now that's a phrase in Old Testament that means the places furthest away. So whatever you have in your mind is the furthest place away, that's what coastlands mean. The coastlands. The people far and wide are waiting for God's law. What does that mean? That, that things would be just. Once and for all. You know that when Jesus came, the scripture says that he fulfilled all the ordinances. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. He fulfilled the dietary law. All of those things are fulfilled in Christ. But the law of God 
The law of God, you know, that we know as the Ten Commandments, that's still good. That doesn't stop being holy and right. And everywhere around the world today, there is a moral code, and everybody knows it. You don't find a place anywhere in the darkest jungle where they say, you know what, murder is really good. I wonder why that is. I mean, surely it seems like somewhere they would say, this is a good thing, we should go around murdering each other. But they don't. There's a moral code written on the hearts of men. Who put it there? That's right. God did. There's another thing that governs all mankind. You know what it is? Logic. You know that everyone everywhere uses logic? Nobody likes, to, nobody anywhere on earth will violate the law of non-contradiction. At least not on purpose. Because everybody understands, well that don't make sense. Something cannot be both true and false at the same time. Right? Everybody understands the need for coherence. When we speak to one another, we respond to one another in the language that we're trying to communicate in. We don't just start speaking gibberish, right? Gobble, 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 gobble. Every once in a while, when I talk to an atheist, I just want to say, well, if it doesn't matter, if logic doesn't matter, then I can just use nonsense. Why not? Well, because it's written on the hearts of men. Logic, why? That's a fingerprint of God. You ever think that there's another language that's universal? You know there's a universal language that every single nation, everywhere, every tribe, every tongue practices? It's called mathematics. It's the same everywhere. It's non-material. How does that come to be? Fingerprint of God. Fingerprint of God. All these fingerprints of God laid out upon mankind declaring that, that that's the desire of man's hearts. We want to see justice. doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. You may not be able to understand the left, or if you're the left, you may not be able to understand the right. But one thing you both want is justice. You just think about it in different ways. Everybody wants what's just, what's right. This is a, a fingerprint, I think, that God has established in us. And so this Messiah, Jesus Christ, he's going to persevere and he's going to accomplish it. And in our time, while we await, anxiously await the return of the king, what ought we be striving for? He said, go and make disciples, right? He said, occupy until I come. Be engaged. Be a part. Preach the kingdom of God is at hand. The day of justice is coming. Verse 5, it says, Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, and who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So who is the one who says all this? Yahweh, the creator, the one who gives all men breath who places a spirit in all men, Yahweh, the Creator, God, the Lord. All right, well then what's the purpose? What is the purpose of, of this call that God gives? He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant or a promise 
for the people, a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. Finally, the one perfect servant who won't mess it up. Anybody here ever as a servant screw up, make a bad choice, get in the flesh, you know, flip out when we shouldn't have flipped out. Maybe we should have stayed calm. You know, we react poorly. Every once in a while, when we do that, someone will say, I thought you were a Christian or something like that. Really cuts to the bone like, oh, yeah, I I forgot. I should try to be nicer. I'll stop hitting you with a bat now. We want to follow that example. Well, who's the one that fulfilled that? Christ. Jesus. He's the suffering servant, the perfect servant, the servant of God, empowered by the Spirit of God to accomplish the purpose of God that is what? To bring light or truth to the Gentiles. Jesus said, I am the light of the world so that you don't have to walk in darkness. What is that referencing? So that you can walk in truth. So that you can walk in life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except how? Through me. Right, that's right. So so we see this reference. The purpose of the call, hey, the purpose of the call is to shine that light unto the Gentiles. Now who... Is the servant going to reach? Who's he going to touch? Look what it says in verse 7. To open the eyes of the blind. Doesn't that sound familiar? To bring the prisoners out of the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now oftentimes we, we look at that and we a lot of times people want to come up with crazy ways that Jesus did that. But let's just keep it simple. Uh, he brought me out of the bondage to sin. To freedom in Christ. I was a prisoner. I didn't even know. But I was sitting in darkness. And then one day the light shone. Right? Hank Williams said what? I saw the light. You guys know that song, don't you? I saw the light. What? The light that did what? It's supposed to lead me out of darkness, right? It's supposed to take me from the prison. This, these are the people that the servant came for. Now, when we look at Isaiah 61, isn't it the same? I came to give sight to the blind, to set the captives free, right? So we have this same idea. He came for the broken. He came for the lost. He came for the ones in darkness. And the people who said, I'm not in darkness, they may still be blind, but they stay blind. Because they can't acknowledge their own need. Right? You you ever try to help somebody who just is absolutely positive they don't need help? And you come alongside and say, oh, mister, you're drowning. You don't know it yet, but you're drowning. Oh, no, I'm fine. No, you're really not. You're really not. You, you need help. I'm going to throw you a line. I don't need your dumb line. I'm fine. I've actually been in hospitals with men getting ready to meet their maker who have that exact same attitude. No, I don't need Jesus. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's hard to help a man that's blind if he thinks he can see. It's hard to help a man understand the truth if he's already sure he has it. Right? It's hard... It's hard to speak to the deaf that pretend like they hear. And these are the things. He came for the broken who would understand. Jesus said, I came for the sick. 
I came to heal the sick. I came to help the broken. I came for those who know they need a Savior. And so Jesus came for that. In verse 8, then immediately after the first seven verses describing (coughs) the servant of God, Jesus Christ, then immediately have this call to praise God. Why are we praising God? Because look what he's done. He's providing for us. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will give to no other. My praise I will not give to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. All the things I told you about about the past, they have happened. And now new things I now declare. Before they happen, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God saying, I'm telling you about the servant. He's coming. He's coming. I'm telling you before it happens. Why? So that you will know that I am the Lord. That is my name. The Lord is not his name. His name is Yahweh. Right? Capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh. The becoming one. Praising his character and praising his control. Everything I said would happen has happened. Everything I say will happen will happen. And so the proclamation (coughs) that all the earth would praise the Lord in verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and inhabitants, as far as you can go, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Now, Kedar's interesting character. Kedar is a character that is always hostile toward Israel. It's the second son of Ishmael. There's another famous figure that came from the second son of Ishmael. You know him, but you don't know you know him. Mohammed. Mohammed is from the tribe of Kedar. They're hostile towards Israel, but the Lord predicts they'll be defeated. He also says that they're associated with Arabia. God says in Isaiah 21, the oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia, you will lodge, O caravans of the Dedanites, uh, to the thirsty, bring water, meet the fugitive, uh, with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. In verse 16, For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year, according to the year of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. So God says they're going to they're gonna be defeated. They were traditional enemies of Israel. They're associated with Arabia. But in Isaiah 60, listen. In Isaiah 60 it says, All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Naboth shall minister to you. They will come up with acceptance on my altar. God says one day, Jesus is going to somehow turn their hearts. They're going to come to his altar. Not that they're going to go to, and Muhammad and Allah are all the same. That's not what he's saying. He's saying one day they're going to bring their sheep and they're going to come to my altar. They're going to come to my altar. So we have this promise through Messiah. And I will beautify my beautiful house. The idea. That's why I think it's important, it's vital to share the gospel. No matter whether we like everybody or we don't. We got one job, right? He said, he said more so than share the gospel, he said do what? Make disciples of how many? Every nation. That's all people, right? 
Everybody, even if they're refugees, they wear funny hats, talk with funny languages. Should we still share the gospel with them? What if they hate you? Should you share the gospel with them? Yeah, because the Bible says one day God's going to turn their heart. That means we need to be a part. The other group that's mentioned here in this section about praising the Lord is Selah. Now, Selah means the top of the mountain or the rock. The rock. So let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. It's almost like you're talking about a people that live in the crags of the rock. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. Again, the faraway lands. Now in Obadiah, verse 3, <coughs> talking about Selah, it says this, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now, when we talk about that, when we think about that, when we consider that, here's the interesting part. It's possible, I can't speak definitively, but it's possible, Selah, living in the cliffs of the rock. Well, if you went to Israel with us a couple of years ago, you went there. It's a place called Petra, where they carved their houses, where? Right in the face of the cliff, right? Where they lived in the clefts of the rock. The Nabataean, the Nabataean kingdom. So it's possible that Obadiah is talking about the Nabataean kingdom. Same kind of references though who brings the light to all the nations to the nations of the gentile who is it messiah christ is going to shine that light christ is going to shine shine that light now it goes on in verse 13 to let us know god now in the meantime god's not just sitting around waiting for everything to happen look what it says in verse 13 the lord goes out like a mighty man like a man of war he stirs up his zeal he cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. God's not just doing nothing. God's still moving. God's still working. He is still on the throne. Listen to verse 14. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. But now I cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. Now that's an interesting phrase. What in the world is that all about? Well, he's saying, just like it appears to us, God's not doing anything, and then suddenly, bam, he's there. Just like a pregnant woman who is uh, preparing or, or coming to the date when she will give her delivery, seems like life's pretty normal, and then all of a sudden, what? There's a bunch of screaming. <laughs> right? Well, at least there was for us. I don't know. I told you guys before, Kathy blew out all the blood vessels in the whites of her eyes with uh, our second son. And I was pretty sure she became demon-possessed right there on the bed. You ever watch the whites of somebody's eyes turn black? I'm just telling you. Yeah, it was a little crazy. But just like that, so just like there's, there was silence for a time, but then, bang, here it comes. In the same way, it's talking about God's movement, God's judgment, God uh, uh, moving like a man of war over the nations. While there may be times of silence, he is always ready to move. To bring that <laughs> swift response. For it is only God who can save. Now look at the physical reactions that are, that are going to take place. He says, I will lay waste mountains and hills will dry up. 
of all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind in a way they don't know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. That's pretty important. Now, there ought to be several examples you can think of. Certainly at least one, right? We know this guy from the book of Acts. His name was Paul. He was killing Christians. And then one day, as Paul's marching around in darkness, what did Jesus do? He shined a light on them, right? He says, I will take the blind and lead them in paths they do not know. I will get them out of the darkness. I will turn their darkness into light this is still what god does this is still how god changes hearts this is still how god moves among the nations and our desire is to definitely see god move among the nations but if we're going to see god move then we must be a people who are set apart from idols look at verse 17 now they are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols now I get it. You and I probably don't have little wooden carved idols at home that we bow down and pray to. But the point of idols is things, other things that they put their trust in to save them. And there and there we do have things, right? We have things in, in, into which we've placed our trust rather than our trust into the Lord. We want to we be trusting in God. Our hope is in the Lord, not in some carved uh, object, not in some metal image. They said to their metal images, you are our gods. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. This is God speaking. Who is blind but my servant or deaf but my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Now he's talking about Israel. And he's talking about Israel and Israel in their idolatry. And he's saying, I'm calling to you. I've sent my prophets to you. I send my people to you, but you can't hear them. Because your ears are plugged up with your idols. Your ears are plugged up trusting in that which cannot save that that and that which cannot satisfy so what is god's response the people can't hear the people can't see this was the constant problem with israel israel you're called to be my servant be that example to the nations and then the next chapter he's calling israel a prostitute which emphasizes what that she's unfaithful that israel is unfaithful So it took the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, to make a way so that you and I who struggle with the same unfaithfulness can put on faithfulness by putting on Christ. Who can be empowered to walk the walk through the Holy Spirit in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where the victory is. There's no victory on our own. There's only victory in in that we are submitted to committed and surrendered to him and we allow him to move what is it that god wants from them it says so the lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious so what's god do he magnifies his law 
What is one of the first laws? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You know that the funny thing about the law, the Ten Commandments, is that the law deals with two main ideas. Love God and love your neighbor. Same thing Jesus said. Love God and love your neighbor. These fulfill all the law and the prophets. The Ten Commandments are divided into exactly that point. Those which relate to our loving of God and those that relate to the loving of neighbor. If I love my neighbor, what do I do? Well, I won't commit adultery with his wife. If I love my neighbor, what do I do? I won't bear false witness against him. I won't steal him. I won't kill him. If I love God, what will I do? I'll have no other gods before him. We have these, this idea. He wants to magnify his law and make it glorious. So who brought judgment upon the people? But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will attend and listen for the time has come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Who is it that allowed all these things to happen to Israel? Now at the time of Isaiah, they've been delivered. But Babylon's on the horizon and they're coming. The people of Israel are beginning to walk in disobedience. They're beginning to walk in unfaithfulness. So who's going to bring the plunderer and the looter? God is. God is. He's a good father. And the Bible says, a father who loves his children does what? He disciplines them. He'll take care. So was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and in whose ways they would not walk and in whose laws they would not obey? So who brought judgment on the people? Yahweh did. Why? Because they would not walk in his way. See, see, if we, if we cannot achieve a just relationship with God, then God, according to His holiness, has no other response but to pour out His wrath. Don't you see that's why Christ came? So that He could bear the wrath of God? So that He could bear what we cannot? So that He could give us what we cannot do? So that He could bestow upon us what we do not have? So that He can empower us to walk the walk that we can't walk on our own? This is what the servant is doing. And the result, even though this happened, even though the the judgment of God comes, even though they find themselves in Babylon, it says, so he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It'll set him on fire all around. But he didn't understand. It burned him up. But it didn't change his heart. Didn't. It didn't change. What do we read in Revelation over and over again when the, when the judgment of God is coming on a Christ-rejecting world? What does it say? And still, as the wrath of God was poured out, and still they would not repent. You cannot have the gospel of Jesus Christ without repentance. Repentance is me turning from my sin and turning to Christ. Repentance is me acknowledging that I'm broken and I can't do it myself. That I need Him. 
Repentance is me bowing the knee before a king and declaring that I am his. Do with me as you will. It's not my life I live, Paul said. It's Christ. He lives in me. Galatians 2.20 says, For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live now, I live by the power that God gave me so that I could be the man God wants me to be. Galatians 2.20 and 21. That's what the servant was all about. That's the setting us free. And that's, it's, it's laid alongside the contrast of the people who find themselves in a state of unfaithfulness, falling in holes, being stuck in pits. And even though God brings judgment upon them, they don't really understand what's going on. They're, they're stumbling and fumbling and their hearts don't change. Till they come face to face. With Jesus Christ. You and I, we've, we've had that opportunity, right? Jesus has come. He has paid. He was killed, buried, rose again, ascended to the Father and is seated at the right hand. And God the Father said to him, Sit here until I make your enemies your footstool and he will come again for what is his he redeemed this earth it belongs to him and the Christ rejecting on the earth those who will not turn those who will not of their own accord bow the knee to Messiah well they will bow their knee one day but the kingdom won't be for them they'll be outside where there's Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just seems like a bad place to be. Jesus Christ, the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 42 for the first place. And we'll see it again in 52 and 53. That suffering servant is going to make a way. Finally, the light that everybody was looking for from the prophets. Where's this light that's going to that's gonna shine? He comes and the gospels declare the light that was promised is here and Jesus stood before the people and said I am the light of the world the promise through Jesus Christ our Savior amen want you stand with me and let's pray father God we thank you for this time that we can study your word we thank you for Isaiah 42 God I pray that we would be challenged by your scripture to come to know you more, to understand more about you, to have our hearts open, God, to, uh, to just comprehend <clears throat> what is the height, the depth, the width, the breadth, the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would move in our midst, empower us to be what we are called to be. For we are the called, the chosen and the faithful because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we give you praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.